welcome back to Raising Up the Next Generation. I'm your host, Dan McPherson, and my guest on the show today is Todd Bolsinger. Todd is the Senior Congregational Strategist and Associate Professor of Leadership Formation at Fuller Theological Seminary, University. Seminary or University? Seminary. Very good. Uh, Also an accomplished author, writing many articles and books. His newest book is Tempered Resilience, came out in 2020, but our topic for today is a book that I love, Canoeing the Mountains, Christian Leadership in Unchartered Territory. He's passionate about leadership, and I'm super excited for him to join us. Todd, welcome to the show. It's nice to be with you, Dan. Thanks for having me. So in this season of the podcast, we're just looking at at books, really, that it's a selfish way for me to just talk about books that I love and um, big fan of Canoeing the Mountains. So start kind of at a 30,000 foot level. Why did you write the book? And then there's a there's a storyline that kind of permeates throughout the book. So maybe share a little bit about that. Yeah. 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 So, so I wrote the book because I had to get it out of my system. I had spent um, the better part of seven years thinking about change and leading change and particularly this type of leading change called adaptive change, which is Mm. how do you lead when there are no best practices, when you're not an expert, when you don't have a solution or a strategy or a plan, when you literally go into uncharted territory, you go off the map and you have to figure out how you lead a group of people then. And that would have been the story of my life as a pastor for 30 years almost. I served as a pastor in two different congregations, 17 of which was in a congregation in San Clemente, California. And we were at a season of our life where we'd had about uh, 10 straight consecutive years of everything going up and to the right in the way that you wanted it to go, like all the... Mm all the numbers, uh, not not any way that would get anybody's attention, but just solid, healthy growth. And what we discovered is I had an experience where while the numbers were going in the right direction um, and the metrics were positive, the morale was going down. Mm. I couldn't figure that one out. I couldn't figure out why, if all the metrics are going up, why is the morale going down? And I brought in a group to work with me and they really taught me that, that, Everything I had done in the first 10 years had been the kinds of things that needed to be done that made the church do do better, Um, and that now we were actually in a new day, and the kinds of leadership that got me here wasn't going to take me to the next place. Yeah. So was that that morale among staff, morale of the congregation as a whole? Um, Where were you seeing that? Some of it was staff. Mostly it wasn't the congregation. They were happy. It was my best leaders. The very people mm. I wanted uh, to be with me, to uh, to can stay with me, the people on my board and my count, uh, what's called a session. I'm a Presbyterian. That's what we call our boards. Um, in my best staff, the morale was going down. And what we discovered mm. was they were saying stuff like, um, it feels like the whole ministry here is about your ministry. Um, mm. Nobody would say it this way, but it was like I had unconsciously created Todd Bolsinger Ministries at San Clemente Presbyterian Church. <laughs> And they were like, we want to participate in God's mission and we want to participate in something that we ourselves are flourishing in. Uh, we didn't we didn't just come to support your ministry. And and nobody would say it that candidly, but that's really what I had done. I had I had not intended to. I had been the technical solution for their problems. And now we are in what we call an adaptive territory where the technical solutions weren't going to work anymore. And so yeah. Um, so that basically, because of that ex- personal experience, I started learning a lot about leadership 
I started leading some other leadership experiences in my church and in my denomination. And I stumbled onto this metaphor about Lewis and Clark that became helpful. And when I wrote the book, I just thought, I just want to get all this out of my system. I want to get Lewis and Clark behind me and figure out what I'm going to do next. And I just discovered that actually by writing the book and by doing the follow-up work, I actually found the next phase of my own ministry, which is Mm. how I do all leadership formation and leadership development. I lead a leadership center at Fuller Seminary, and I have a consulting company called A.E. Sloan Leadership that works to help faith light leaders thrive as change leaders. And so every day now I do the thing that I thought I was trying to stop doing. Yeah, good. So share briefly with those who may not know the story of Lewis and Clark, just kind of share what they experienced that then kind of catapulted you into your thoughts throughout the book. Well, most of us don't remember our 11th grade history class very much. So that makes <laughs> fair sense. enough. Um, fair enough. Um, it, it, uh, somewhere in, along the way in U.S. history, you heard basically about how Thomas Jefferson, who was the president of the United States, um, you know, some 40 years in um, to the to the uh, was um, sent Lewis and Clark, the who were the head of the Corps of Discovery to find a water route. That's what they were trying to find was a water route that would connect the Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic Ocean. Um, for 300 years, people of European descent had been looking for a water route that would connect um, Africa and Asia to Europe. Um, the mental model was all the important people are in Europe and all the resources seem to be in other parts of the world. And if we can get those resources to the important people, well, then whoever owns that water route can tax other people for taking people on that water route. It, you, you know, you you own the supply chain, if you will. It would be like owning the Internet today. And what Thomas mm-hmm. Jefferson said was for this young fledgling country that was, you know, in 1805 was probably about 30 years old, um, said, oh, if we control the water route over this continent, then we can tax the other nations and we can get wealthy and we can get secure fast. So let's go find send a group to find the water route. So what everybody knew was you could connect the Atlantic Ocean through the Gulf of Mexico up through the Mississippi River, and it connected to this thing to the Missouri River. The Missouri River would take it uh, the, from St. Charles, Missouri, up over into the West. They also knew that there was a water route that came from the Columbia River from the Pacific Ocean. Now, all that to tell you, but nobody knew how that came together. Hmm. So what they really believed was that they were going to go 18 months upstream. They were up the Missouri River. They would connect to the to the Columbia River, and then they would have a water route. And that water route would enable them to do all of those things that were good for the country. And after 18 months of traveling upstream, they got to the to the border of Montana and Idaho, They walked up a tiny little pass. They looked over to thinking they would find a stream on the other side of this pass. And they found the Rocky Mountains. And now anybody who's from the West would think this is ridiculous. But if you're from the East and your idea of mountains are the Shenandoah Mountains, the Appalachian Mountains, um, to see things that go up to 14,000 foot peaks that couldn't possibly have a river go through was to realize that the maps were wrong, that all of the expectation of the future was wrong, that the idea that the future would be exactly like the past. And if you were an expert water navigator, then all you need to do is keep paddling harder. And what we found instead was that the entire terrain was different. The shift was different and that the world in front of them was nothing like the world behind them. And they would have to lead a completely different way. 
They could no longer keep paddling or canoeing. They now had to scale mountains. Yeah, I and you throughout the book, you come back to that over and over again with very practical examples of their experience in their journey and tying it to leadership today. And so you kind of move into this realm of of using a term you call transformational leadership. And there are some components to that. So what is transformational leadership? And maybe kind of share those those three components you have and kind of explain those, kind of uh, flesh those out a little bit. Yeah. So if you're talking about when we're talking about leading in an uncharted territory, the most important thing that happens is the transformation that happens to the people going on the journey. In other words, if you if you if you if your muscles are well developed for paddling <laughs> and you've got good shoulder and arm muscles because you've been paddling a canoe, if you got to get out of the canoe, you got to develop you got to be transformed into having leg muscles and yeah, be right. able to, to hike and climb instead of paddle. There's a transformational process that happens. Mm-hmm. And the three elements we've figured out about transformational leadership are three things. One is called technical competence. Technical competence is the way you have credibility because you were able to lead on the map. So Lewis and Clark were the kinds of people who the men trusted them because they were good navigators. They were good at canoeing. They were good at running a good battalion, a good corps. They were good at all of that. They had trust. They had technical competence. Technical competence is where your expertise applies to the situation and and you develop credibility because you do. The second, after technical competence, is what we call relational congruence. And relational congruence is where credibility turns into trust. Not only are you good at what you do, but you're also a good person. You're you're congruent. People can expect you to be the same person in every situation, a person of integrity and of character and of compassion. What most of us were taught is as long as you are a good person who does good things, if you're a person with good skills and good character, that's enough. And I would say that on the map, it isn't enough. Um, If you keep getting the crew to go in the right direction with good expertise, you lead the church well, you do your programs well, you handle the scriptures well, you are good with staff, you have programs that people care about, services that people care about, you're doing fine. But when you all of a sudden find yourself in uncharted territory where the world has changed dramatically, then technical competence and relational congruence needs what's called adaptive capacity. Hmm. And adaptive capacity is your capacity to learn as you go, to face losses, figure out what you're going to let go, navigate competing values. You got to make hard decisions. You can't keep paddling and keep going forward. You got to choose. Are we canoers or are we explorers? Which one are we? Yeah. And you're going to have to decide, which means that you're going to experience loss which means if you came on this trip because it's a canoe trip and you thought you were going to be paddling and you built your own canoes and we come back and tell you there's no water, now you're going to have to drop those canoes. And this is where I think the church is today. This is why this metaphor becomes important is that it requires leaders to be transformed, not just be people of credibility and trust, but credibility and trust and the capacity to wisely adapt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't imagine that you wrote this thinking that everything that has happened w- was going to happen. So a very prophetic book 
in many ways, which we'll kind of talk about in a little bit. But as you think about technical competence, relational congruence, adaptive capacity, you work with a lot of leaders from, I would assume, multiple spaces, um, you know, whether that's in a church context, a business context. Someone who's listening and they're kind of figuring out, okay, where, what's my strength, my strong, my mm. strong suit, what's my weakness? What have you found is pretty typical where someone is really high in one and low in another? What is, and maybe those are different from in a church setting versus a business setting, mm. but cut what, what is kind of, um, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so I always say this, you become a leader because you were really competent at something that was not leading, hmm. right? So we, you get you become a leader. So you become the senior pastor of a church because you're a good preacher, um, you know? So three points in a poem, and you're really good at exegeting the scriptures. And so we'll let you run the whole church as if those two things have to do with each other. Or in the business world, you know, the best salesperson gets promoted to sales manager as if working with customers and working with a sales team is the same thing, right? Hmm. Leadership yeah. is where what happens is, I always say this, leaders are formed in the leading. And so the struggle for most of us is that we were really competent individual contributors who now have to figure out how to become leaders of a group of people mm. who are going through an experience that is um, different than they expected, disrupted, and oftentimes disappointing for people. Mm. And you got to take them through that experience. So yeah. most really, really gifted, technically competent people struggle with becoming adaptive leaders mm. because you can no longer reply, uh, depend upon your hard work, your skill set, your all the things that got you here are not going to be what get you there. And that becomes really the giant internal challenge. I mean, our coaching, our consulting, uh, we work with faith. Our our, our company is um, AE Sloan Leadership is about how helping faith leaders thrive as change leaders. Because what we learned was we can teach them how to lead change, and we do, but if they don't thrive in that process personally by their own transformation and their own self-care, they won't be able to keep leading the change. So we help faith leaders thrive as change leaders. And that's in multiple settings and quite frankly, in multiple denominational settings. We work with people across the board. I've worked with three different types of Lutherans and three different types of Presbyterians and th four different types of Baptists and soon to be two different types of Methodists and th two different types of Anglicans. And what uh, we talk to people who don't talk to each other yeah. because what we have in common is this world is changing dramatically and we've got to learn to lead all over again. Yeah. Is something that you find, and maybe I, I'm speaking a little bit out of experience, although I don't know really what I'm good at necessarily, but I but I wonder if if there's a it's really challenging to make the leap from doing something really well to teaching that thing. Uh, that it's hard to sometimes if you do something well, it's hard to teach that, especially if it comes naturally or you've never been taught. It just kind of came. You've self-taught or whatever. Have you found that to be the case? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So if you just think about it, many great athletes are not great coaches. Mm. Uh, I, I'm Los Angeles, you know, the 80s Lakers. Magic Johnson was an amazing player. He tried to coach the Lakers a couple of different times and it just didn't work. He was not a good yeah. coach. Right. Coaching and leading is different than being an individual contributor. 
So the skill set that is really important, it gives you credibility, right? People trust you. You know, I said, so let me just talk about pastoring and stuff. You know, if you don't handle the scriptures well, if you don't teach faithfully and competently, no one's going to trust you with anything. That, mm. That's that's like the table stakes, if you will. Um, you have to be able to do that. But if you think that you can preach your way out of these problems, you're missing a point. Mm. Like none of us can preach well enough. I mean, we know, we saw this during COVID. All the best churches and best places all experienced people leaving and decline and struggle. And I mean, we all got disrupted. So you can't keep using your old skill set alone. You you need it, but you have to learn some new things. So the biggest challenge isn't how do I go from being an individual contributor to someone who teaches others? It's how do I go from being an expert to a learner? Mm. How do I become the person who keeps leading the learning so that we can mm-hmm. learn as we go? I was working with a church this morning um, that, that is working on making massive changes in their congregation. And the leadership team was, we were talking about the fact that now after two years of working to really develop credibility and trust, trust now is invested in transformation. Mm. People have to trust you on the map to follow you off the map. Mm. But they're, but when you take them off the when you when they you take them off the map, you take them into uncharted territory. You start making change. They're gonna get the trust is gonna go down because people are gonna yeah. be disappointed. They're gonna they're they're not. They know you don't know have all the answers. They expected you to. You actually have to lead them through a learning process. Yeah, good. And that phrase, trusting or on the map and off the map, mm-hmm. comes through over and over again in your book. And so, for for maybe a leader or it how do they prepare for the unknown yeah because in the literal word unknown means that you don't know what's coming oh, so right. what what does how do you prepare for that are there steps is there is there just a, a mindset talk a little bit about that yeah so the the two biggest things you can do to prepare for the unknown are um one, continually develop the relationships with the people that you're with. Mm. Margaret Wheatley, who's a leadership person, said you cannot predict the future, but you can prepare for the future. And you prepare for the future by the quality of trust in our relationships. Mm. So what I would say to leaders today is um, you're always building trust. You're always pulling people together. You're helping them trust each other. You're you're making sure that you're consistent that your practices are consistent, your character is consistent. You don't say one thing and do another. That amongst the group, we have a, a set set of agreements. I always say, you know, what when we coach teams, we say, you know, let's get clear on what we're all stacking hands on, we're all agreeing to, and we're all going to do, right? You build trust. But then the second thing you do to prepare for uncharted territory is you prepare people that we're going to have to lead through learning, which means we have to develop humility. Mm. The hardest thing, I would say, I work at a seminary. Everybody who comes to a seminary, somebody said to them, you're the best Christian I know. You should go pro. You should go off to professional Christian school. And they come to the school and we give them a master of divinity. It sounds like a superhero, doesn't it? And they, they go back into their congregations and they are told, you're the reverend with the master. What are we going to do? And in a lot of things, they are the expert. They know how to handle the scriptures. We train them how to how to do good count pastoral counseling. They know how to organize 
programs that people need. They can usually run a pretty good meeting. But then all of a sudden, the world changes dramatically. Someone looks them in the eye and says, okay, master of divinity, what are we going to do? And if they have any integrity whatsoever, they've got to say the three hardest words that any human has to say, according to psychologists, which is, I don't know. And so I'm going to lead us together through learning. We're going to go one step at a time, learning as we go. So we have to trust each other and we have to be humble enough to go through the learning. And those are the ways we prepare for the future. Um, and for many of us, we didn't have that model. We, we had model was, um, is that you're going to be the expert. I'm going to have the plan. I'm going to tell you what to do and you're going to follow me. And, mm. and that doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Man, so good. Trust and humility, something that ev everyone should learn, but especially especially those in, in leadership at, at high levels, for sure. So you have a chapter called The Mission Trumps. Mm -hmm. So that that kind of is a is a heartbeat of yours, especially with regard to leadership and into into the unknown. So talk about what what that phrase means mm -hmm. and then how do we put the mission at the forefront mm -hmm. and keep our eyes on on that prize there? Yeah. So, um, so two things about that. Number one is it shows that I wrote the book in 2013 and 14. I don't think I would have used <laughs> the word the mission trumps after 2016, just because <laughs> it's too controversial in too many places. But what I'm referring to, of course, is a trump card. What is the thing that makes helps us make the de decision? And the answer isn't the leader. I'm the leader, follow me. Mm -hmm. The leader's job is to keep people focused on our mission. This is what God has called us to be and to do. It's this. The leader is the custodian of the mission. Mm. Leader is the person who says, um, no matter what happens, I'm focused on our mission. I'm, a, I'm called here to be the person who keeps us focused on the thing we're called to do. So when we consult and we work with folks, we help them get really, really clear on what we call their charism. Um, and the charism is the work of this is this is the uniqueness of this congregation. This is our gift. This is what makes us different than others, not better, but just uniquely us. This is what mm -hmm. this is the unique way. It's like the unique DNA that is different to every person, right? Is also, I think, different in every community. Churches are living organisms. Mm -hmm. That DNA, that charism, that sense of who we are. I believe when we look out into our world and we ask the question, so God, what would you have us to do? What's the difference you want us to make? Why should we be here? That becomes our mission. And for me, we work with churches on developing mission statements. And I always say to them, a mission statement is a tool, not a t-shirt. It's not a marketing statement. It's not a branding statement. It's not something that you find to be clever. It is a tool that helps you make decisions. Are we doing this or are we doing that? Mm. Are we going forward or going back? Are we about canoeing? So we'll stay here to where the rivers are and tell people about canoeing? Or, or are we about discovery? So we're going to drop the canoes and go forward. Mm -hmm. There's decisions to be made. The mission is what helps you make the decision. It's not about your power, not about the fact that you're in charge. It's not about your ego. I know a lot of leaders who are saying stuff like, you know, if they don't, it, 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 that my job is to set the vision and set the vision of the bus and they can get on the bus or get off. No, your job is to gather a group of people together and say, this is what we believe we are called to do. This is what God has in, inspired us to do and called us to do. And so we will do this together. 
So how do we do that together? The mission is what makes the difference. It's the yeah. mission. That's really good. Do you have a, a tangible example of the mission being at the forefront? Somebody comes with with something that either there's a there's a yes we're moving forward or no that's not in the mission mm-hmm. we're not we're not going to do that and maybe how do you do that well something yeah. something comes and you're like that really needs to be a no how do you say no and mm-hmm. let them down easy so to speak yeah 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 so actually the church i was working with earlier today their staff is a great example of this so so people uh um, one of the biggest distinctions in my life, that the differences of my own learning through this adaptive process, the more the church has gone off the map and the more I've been now working with well over 100 churches in this process, is that um, is that we used to all think what we needed was a compelling vision. The pastor casted the vision and then we're all going to follow that vision. The leader's job is to cast a vision. I actually think that more important than your vision is your values. Hmm. Here's what is core about us. Here's what's clear about us. Here's what's never going to change about us. This is our DNA. This is our identity. And we're going to hold these values, actual values, not aspirational values. We have a whole set of um, exercises we take people through so they can get rid of their aspirations and get clear on their actual values. But once you have those sense of actual values, then you say those values lead us to what we're called to be. Our mission comes out of our values. And now we're going to pursue it. So one of my clients is is in a section of a, an urban city um, in the South that has become much more diverse. And the pastor, their values have been from the very beginning that we're going to be missional. We're going to reach our neighborhood. We're not going to be about just sending money over seawater. We're going to believe the mission starts the second you walk out of the sanctuary. And so we're going to be about our neighbors. And as the neighborhood turned over and became more multi-ethnic, the church said, we need to be a multi-ethnic movement of missional disciples. We need to become more multi-ethnic. We need to be like Paul said, to the Jews, I become Jews. To the Greeks, I become Greeks. We need to actually reflect and lead into our community, be good neighbors. We're going to love our neighbors. All those biblical things. The teacher, the pastor is a Bible teacher. It's a Bible church right out of the scriptures. There's no sociological agenda. There's nothing about this being political. For him, this is completely missional. Led the direction. Today, they would say their mission is to be, and they have it very clearly written out, we're to be a multi-ethnic movement of missional disciples for our community. Boom. And it's now they are about... 1,500 members, sometimes up to 2,000. They got about 2,000 folks who call this place home. It's amazing. They're moving into their community. They're doing great work. They got only one problem. Every week he preaches to 500 empty seats because the church used to be 5,000 members. Mm. And when they started moving in this missional direction and it was upset and it was exhilarated by COVID, people began to say, I don't think we want to be part of a church that's talking about multi-ethnicity. If you get rid of all this stuff that feels kind of woke, we could go back to being 5,000 members again. They had a decision to make. Do we want to be a mega church or do we want to be a multi-ethnic missional church? Because in our community, it's probably not going to be both. Mm. Now, they're still pretty good size. Almost any of us would take a 1,500-member church that is multi-ethnic. But for them, they experience the pain every single day. He says every single week, he's aware that we built a sanctuary when we were huge and they expect me to fill it. Mm. 
that thing is like a giant canoe and it's just giving us all kinds of heartburn. Mm. What they've had to do is recognize they're not going to tear down their buildings. They're not going to waste their space, but they got to stop making their goal, filling their building. Instead, it's got to be transforming their people and being willing to live with the pain of people looking at them going, hey, we built this big building because we thought we'd be 10,000 members. And you're basically leading us on a path that's going to be missional, but it not, might not be mega. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Putting the mission at the front and requires and and you will experience and you talk about this in the book, you'll experience a lot of conflict, a lot of heartache, and uh, you use the word sabotage, that there will be people either, as we think about maybe a church context, within the congregation, even among the staff uh, who are the leaders, that um, that there will be sabotage, conflict, and pushback as you're as you're in that. So share a little bit about maybe maybe some examples where you've seen that where people have endured. Um, maybe maybe an example where it's just all fallen apart and and give us some some hope and how we can how we can walk through those those hard times. Yeah. So so my most recent book, Tempered Resilience, was because was written because um Everywhere I went, I was probably traveling 100,000 miles a year, going around the country, talking about adaptive change and canoeing the mountains. And what would happen is everybody wanted to talk about the chapter in the book on sabotage. And it's important because it happens. Um, um, Ed Friedman, who is a Jewish rabbi who did a lot of work on congregation and religious organizations on how they go through change. He said that the way you have to realize is change happens because you make a change. Everybody agrees. We take a vote. We're going to do this. I, all in favor, yes. Then there will be sabotage. Mm. So you work with youth pastors. How many youth pastors were like, we stretched the budget so we could get a youth pastor. We want a full-time youth person here. Okay, great. We hired you. Welcome. We're so glad you're here. Great job, Dan. Thanks for being here. And you come up and say, so if we're going to reach youth, we're going to have to make these changes. Whoa, 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 whoa. We hired you. Yeah. You're the only change we want to make. We want to be the same. We just want you to. We, they want you to be the technical solution to their adaptive challenge. Mm. They don't want you to. They don't want to go through transformation. They just want to pay for you. We wrote a check so we can have you. We have a staff person. Go run that program down in the basement. Don't make us change anything. And you're like, if we really want to reach kids and families, we're going to have to make more changes. And then that's sabotage. Mm. We made the change. We brought on Dan. Now we're going to resist it. And Dan gets sabotaged with every decision he wants to make. This is normal, Friedman says. It's natural. It happens, he thinks, 100% of the time. Hmm. It's not the bad things that evil people do. It is the human things that anxious people do. Hmm. When people get anxious, they want to go back to normal. They want to go back to the Man, status quo. So good. Right? If, when, yeah. you, when you take people into someplace unfamiliar... They feel unfamilied, the root word of familiar and family. They feel abandoned. They get anxious mm. and their anxiety takes them back. And so what we have to do is take people through the process of leading through sabotage, where you take people as calmly as possible through the conviction, the missional conviction that will lead to transformation. And that is the hardest part of leadership. It's the 
It's the most soul-sucking thing for most leaders. It's I would say the biggest challenge is not the world out there that's changing. It's the resistance of your people in here, inside the church, who don't want to adapt to the world out there. Mm. And so Tempered Resilience was written about the formation needed so leaders have the wisdom and the resilience to lead that kind of change. Yeah, so good. I don't know who coined the phrase. I've heard multiple people use it, Mark Sayers, John Mark Comer, the that Jesus was a non-anxious presence. That as leaders you th- talking about an- anxious people are are doing things to out of that anxiety and as leaders to be non-anxious presences to just come through in in this calm um well in, well in they probably learned that which is super Friedman. yeah they probably learned that from Friedman who learned okay. it from okay. Murray Boeing this is let me just say this piece about this i i know that phrase and it's a really important phrase in my own life but I always say to people, you know, if I was a non-anxious presence, I would be dead. Um, mm. I think that's like too, attain- too attainable. Jesus might have been non-anxious. I don't think I can. What I can work on is being less anxious. Mm. I sometimes say to myself, I need to be the least anxious person in this room. I'm still going to have my anxiety. But if I can know that it's there, this is what I'm anxious about. Like like a lot of times when I'm leading, I'm, I'm anxious that they're going to reject me. Mm. Jesus was prepared for their rejection. Or I'm anxious that they're going to minimize me. They're going to they're going to ridicule me. They're going to think that my ideas are dumb. They're going to they're going to make fun of me. I'm going to feel not only personally rejected, I'll feel ri- ridiculed. I uh, um I work a lot with one of my coaches w- was Jim Osterhaus's and uh, Jim Osterhaus and he worked on red zone and blue zone and all my students read his book Thriving Through Ministry Conflict because what you realize is all of us have something that triggers us and makes us anxious. It's either we want acceptance or we want control. We want, we're afraid of that. We won't survive. They'll fire us. Those things make us anxious. Mine is competence. Mine is, I rarely worry whether you're going to like me. I worry a lot that you're going to be thinking, well, there's an hour of time. I'm not getting back. What a waste mm. that I'm part of this committee. I don't want to do this work anymore. This is a waste of my time. When I get anxious, I will overfunction. Mm. which takes them takes out their capacity for them to grow yeah so becoming aware of being less anxious allows me to stay focused on the mission the mission is what matters and that mission is going to be part of the transformation that we're going to go through that mission is going to help us be transformed yeah really good word i'm changing my language i'm going to be the least anxious presence that's go. my <laughs> it's my I new just, phrase I, just, I think if you can be non-anxious go ahead but uh yeah it's, it's almost, <laughs> I, I I coach and work with a hundred leaders a year and none of them can. <laughs> yeah, right. No, that's good. That's a good word. So COVID was the ultimate mountain with a, we were all having canoes, holding canoes. So as you have looked back on your book, as you continue to use those leadership principles, what principle or um, theme from your book is the thing that you have leaned into the most over these past couple years? Well, I would say that up until COVID, I mean, I wrote uh, Canoeing the Mountains as a response to Christendom change, like that we are no longer in the center of culture. And that, and up until COVID, some people would argue with me about that. Since COVID, nobody argues with me. The <laughs> world and the world is different than the world behind us. 
Yeah. So I would say the central thing we've learned is that to go forward into uncharted territory, to lead in a disrupted world and in a world that will continually be disrupted, right? I mean, you probably remember where you were on Friday the 13th, 2020, March 13th, when the world shut down. You probably remember what happened that Sunday when every church developed a television ministry. They just called it Facebook Live. Yeah, and right, right. Streaming and all the meetings went to Zoom and even old people who, you know, my, my mother is 80 and she's like, I don't need that technology. But she got on Zoom because she wanted to see her grandchildren, right? All those things <laughs> yeah. changed. What we realized is two things we've learned is... Um, People are always going to want to change back. Hmm. When people get anxious, they want to go back to the familiar. Yeah. Your job of the leader is to help people let go and learn. Hmm. They're going to have to lead the learning and you're going to have to take people through loss. Yeah. Leadership in uncharted territory is helping people navigate necessary losses hmm. where we let this go. We will be lighter. We'll be able to, we'll be able to experience new muscles and try new things. And we don't lose the capacity to canoe. If a river comes, we know how to bank those canoes and get going, right? We don't lose those capacities, but we're going to have to let some things go. So the biggest thing that I teach almost every place I go is leaders are learners. In uncharted territory, leadership is leading the learning. What are we going to learn? How are we going to learn one step at a time? How are we going to go together and learning together? You create learning communities. And, and for Christians, this takes us back to our birthright. Because what it means to be a disciple, well, that word literally is the word learner. Yeah. It's a committed learner, committed to a, a, a teacher and committed to a group of people who are learning together with this teacher, the, this rabbi. So... So I think that what we've learned over COVID is the people who are going to go into the future are going to be the people who are the most comfortable learning and letting go of the past. I work with a lot of churches, and one of the parts that I've had to get grapple with is, you know, almost every church is down by 30 to 50% in attendance, maybe. Mm -hmm. And the big decision they got to make is, are we going to keep going forward with 30% less people? Or are we going to spend all of our time trying to go get the people that left us? Mm. A lot of times the people that left us left us because they're not ready. They're not ready for what's going forward. It's the yeah. question you gotta ask is, are those lost sheep or is this pruning? Mm. And I think this discernment that is needed is, I mean, I, I worked with one church that was 2000 members before COVID and they found themselves down to 500. And the pastor looked at me and said, I think we have a decision to make is do we go forward with a faithful 500 or do we go try to find the 1500 that wandered off to something else? Now we ideally we'd want that both. Yeah. But those right. are eating values. Which yeah. one are we going to focus on first? And I do think moving forward is going to be the big challenge. How do we lead the learning, let go of the things that are holding us back? That's the challenge that every church is facing. Man, so good. So good. Leading, learning, leading through go. loss, letting go. Yeah. All those L's. Yeah. Really, really, really good. So tell people where they can find your books, um, whether that's Canoeing the Mountains, Tempered Resilience, others, as well as your organization, your leadership um, organization that you 
work with? Where can they find those things? Well, the easiest place to find me is on my company website because everything from there goes to all the rest of the places. So it's A.E. Sloan Leadership, A-E-S-L-O-A-N Leadership. It's named after Al and Enid Sloan of Albernet, Iowa, a, a couple who invested in my life when I was a young leader. And it's really the spirit of what we are doing when we invest in leaders, uh, A.E. Sloan Leadership. And if you go to aesloanleadership.com, from there, you can find not only where it links to our books and the coaching we do and the consulting we do, but also the work I do at Fuller for the Church Leadership Institute at Fuller. Mm. Um, it's, we run cohorts where smaller churches who can't afford consulting can be in a cohort with other people to learn how to do adaptive change. Uh, we do research on this. I mean, it's it's an amazing opportunity that I have every single day. Um, I get to wake up and I get to work with faith leaders who are trying to thrive as change leaders. And that's where um, AE Sloan Leadership is kind of our our home. It's a company we started and it's a small little company we have that does this work with churches all over the country. And it connects to the work I do at Fuller as a professor there and um, working with doctoral ministry students and doing research. Yeah, I love that. Well, I finish with two questions, and and one of the questions I think maybe you just answered. Uh, it's who is someone that saw you as the next generation, believed in you, and raised you up, and maybe that's maybe that's the Sloans or um, or someone else. But it sounds like they had a pretty uh, pretty impactful ministry and um, place in your life. Yeah, Alan Enid Sloan met. I met them when they were sixty eight years old. I was a brand new senior pastor. I was thirty three. They literally said to my wife and me, we are dedicated the rest of our lives to giving you a great ministry and a great life. Wow. And they mentored us. They loved us. They cared about us. Um, we just had our staff retreat for our small team. And we tell their story. Once a year, we gather and we tell the story of Alan Enid around a dinner table. And we remind everybody on our team, this is what we are embodying for other people. We want them to have great ministries and great lives. And what Alan Lena did for us is why it's why we named I, people said to me, why don't you name your consulting, you know, canoeing consulting or out of your own name? Because our job is to help faith leaders thrive as change leaders. We're we want to embody Alan Enid Sloan. So A.E. Sloan leadership was built out of that. I love that story. That's great. And the second question is, I'm excited to hear from you because you are talking about learning. My my question is, What's one thing that you are reading or listening to right now that's encouraging you that we can learn from you that you're learning from? So the most influential book that I've been reading read in the last year is a book by Adam Grant called Think Again. Hmm. Yeah, um, I've got it on my shelf. I haven't read it yet, but yeah. I've heard really well, good things. It's really, he says the, 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 the greatest thinkers of the world were not great thinkers. They were great rethinkers. Hmm. And for, for Christians, this resonates because rethinking is a lot like repentance, where we change our minds, where we go back and say, what do we need to learn again? I mean, literally, my doctoral students, when they come in now because of that book, when you come into my doctoral um, seminar on leading change, which I have doctoral ministry students all over the country who are learning, they spend five years with me learning how to do deep dives in leading change. The first essay they have to write is, tell me what you'd like me to rethink about canoeing the mountains. Now that if now that you've read it, now it's been out for what do you want me to rethink? What do you want me to learn? And half the students think it's a trap. Like, oh my gosh, I'm taking <laughs> because I read that book and the professor's asking me what's wrong with the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Model is in, in in my own life is 
I will only keep going as a leader if I keep learning. Mm. So think again has been the book that I, that I've thought the most about. And um, I've never met Adam Grant. I hope I do someday, but his, that work has been really, really powerful for me. Yeah. Love it. Well, this has been such a great conversation. Thanks for taking time out of your schedule to uh, talk with me. I love your books and, um, and your writing and um, your heart for leadership and learning. It's exactly where I would love to be. And so you inspire me in that. So thanks so much for joining me today. My pleasure, Dan. Thanks for having me. In a world that is ever-changing, Todd's expertise, his written work, and everything that he is doing is so needed, so important. If you are a leader and were inspired by this conversation, I would encourage you to go out and get his book, Canoeing the Mountains. And then his follow-up, Tempered Resilience. I know that as even he is thinking about his work, he is changing things that he is writing, and I love his posture of learning. If there is someone in your life that would benefit from this conversation, a leader that you know, or someone who is interested in this type of leadership, I would really encourage you to pass this episode along to them. Again, I am really enjoying these conversations, just sharing books with you that I love, books that have impacted me and passing them on. Hopefully they are inspiring to you as well. Next week, I am sitting down with Ronald Rollheiser, a book called Domestic Monastery. It is a unique concept and a great conversation. Would love to have you come back from, for that. Until then, blessings on you as you are raising up the next generation where you're at. We'll see you next week.